Why don't we open up to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts, chapter 6, we, uh, it's in the New Testament. It goes like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And uh, we've been in this series looking at the book of Acts. It's, uh, kind of put it simply, it's a biography of the early church. And it's, uh, it's a long story, long narrative, describing, unpacking for us this history of what the church is, how it became sort of this movement that was unstoppable, um, what made the church so unique in the context in which it was, was most movements that had any form of traction or success typically were movements that were based upon violence. Uh, Christianity, not at all. Christianity was a movement that moved forward based upon love, loving people, welcoming people, taking people in that normally would have been outcasts or uh, pushed off to the margins of culture and society. And Christianity was this movement that gained momentum, gained traction, and literally turned the world upside down the way the book of Acts describes it, uh, by way of God moving in this profound way of loving each other. So this is this ongoing story or narrative as to how the church really continued to kind of cycle out from this uh, city of Jerusalem on into really the, the uttermost parts of the world. So that's what we've been looking at. We'll be taking a look at Acts chapter 6 this morning. And we were introduced last week to a guy. His name's Stephen. We're going to continue to learn about Stephen. And the reason why, I thought it'd be good to kind of unpack a little bit more about who Stephen is, to uh, focus a little bit of energy, time, to consider who this guy is, is uh, partly because he's interesting. Um, but the other part is because Luke, who's the writer of this book, actually does it himself. It's almost like the way Luke tells a story, he pauses for a little bit, and he spends a lot of time focusing energy and thought upon this guy by the name of Stephen. Um, in fact, if you were to look at the entire book of Acts, um, the only other character in the entire book that actually is given as much airspace is uh, Paul the Apostle. So most of us are familiar with Paul. We're familiar with the writings that he did in the New Testament. Uh, many of us may or may not be very well familiar with who uh, Stephen is. Um, but Luke writes in such a way in which he wants us to pause, to think about, to reflect upon, to consider who this guy Stephen is. And in particular, what I want to take a look at this morning in terms of looking at this guy Stephen uh, is really his character. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Uh, the name Stephen uh, literally means victor's crown. Uh, the way that this story is written about Stephen is a little bit ironic. Uh, there's a play into his name as well, because if you know anything about the story, I'm going to give you the punchline right now anyhow, so I'll get a spoiler alert, ruin the story of Stephen for you. He actually ends up dying, all right? Um, it's kind of a sad note, of course, but his death, as sad and as tragic as it was, um, actually becomes sort of the spark in this movement of the church. It actually emboldens people. Um, the way that Luke tells the story is actually ends the story of Stephen's life on this cliffhanger. I mean, the more I read the book, the more I read the story of the book of Acts, the more I'm like shocked by the writing skill of it. Because uh, the way Luke ends the story of Stephen's life, it says something like this. Um, that, you know, Stephen had been killed by stoning, which if you're not familiar with what that means, is people pick up these large stones and they hurl them at the individual. And so in this case... Imagine Stephen in the middle of a crowd of a mob chaos type of a circumstance, and people have stones in their hand. They're, uh, it's an incendiary type of a circumstance. They're angry with Stephen. They're looking for an opportunity to kill him. They have rocks, so they have the opportunity, the occasion to actually kill him. And here they are throwing rocks at him to the point where he's dead. And then uh, Luke t- finishes, sort of closes the chapter about Stephen's life by saying, and they took the clothes of this young man, Stephen, and they laid them at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, dot, 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 as if to say, you know the rest of the story, that he's going to be Paul the Apostle. He ends up having his name changed, and he ends up literally becoming the main subject matter from that point forward throughout the book of Acts. So it's, it's, a, it's a cliffhanger. It's intended to kind of grab our attention Uh, So we want to take a look at the life of Stephen and kind of focus on some elemental uh, ideas about Stephen's life. Uh, So you can think of it this way. We'll be taking a look at Stephen the man. This is kind of like verses 8 through 15, uh, verses 1 from 16 on around 53 of chapter 7. I should say one, the entire chapter of 7, this message uh, that he gives uh, is he's sort of this messenger of this uh, delivery person of what he was about to communicate to the religious leadership. 
And then he ultimately ends up becoming uh, the martyr. So we see Stephen the man, Stephen the messenger, Stephen the martyr. You're welcome for the alliteration. And so what I want to look at here specifically, as I mentioned, is the whole subject of Stephen's character. So the, the big idea that I want to convey is this, is that Stephen becomes this like, big deal in the early church um, because of who he was. So the idea of character is really important to the story and the life of Luke because of some of the things that Luke tells us about Stephen. And really what I think he's describing is that it's, it's absolutely essential to the life of anybody. That if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, or if you're just going to be a, a whole human, you know, living in wholeness, what's most important about your life is character. Who you are. Who you are, not by way of how everybody thinks you are, but who you are, when really the way some people describe character is, you know, character is who you are when nobody's looking. Reputation is who you want everybody to think you are. Right? Big distinction, obviously, is the difference between who you are at home when no one's looking over your shoulder to your you know, laptop or your cell phone or when your parents are not watching you or when your spouse is not watching you or your roommates are not home or the type of person you are when your boss is not looking or you're constantly on Facebook or you're constantly wasting uh, uh, money from the company. What type of a person are you when you are not being observed? That is who you are. That's your character. Um, your reputation is what you want everybody else to think you are. It's what you project on Instagram. It's what you project by way of Facebook. It's what you project through all of these other forms of social media. It's what you project when you dress up and come to church and want everybody to actually think that you're doing awesome. So when people ask you how you're doing, we're always like, we're doing great. But, but in reality, we're really not doing great. Our life is falling in apart. We're coming undone. And yet we want to project to everybody that, that this is we're something other than what we know ourselves to truly be. So character is a big deal. Um, it's a great quote. I'll, I'll throw it up there. And I uh, have no idea who it is. Uh, nobody really knows who it is. In fact, there's a website. It's kind of like, um, quote, um, investigators, I think it's called. Like private investigators, private eye. It's like QI. It's like quote investigators. And so actually there are people in this world that, that, that do research to try to track down and figure out who actually quoted certain things. Um, and nobody really can agree on exactly where this came from. But probably many of you have actually heard this, so just, just listen to it. It's a really great quote. It says, uh, watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. Think about that. It becomes your destiny. Who you are, so big idea, is who you are will determine what you will do. Put, put it backwards. What you do or what you will do will be intricately linked to who you are. So that has enormous consequences, enormous possibilities for you and I. Because some of us right now may be facing major life crises within our own lives. And some of those may be based upon or due to certain things that we have done, certain choices or decisions that we made. And the reason why we're paying those consequences right now is because of the character of person that we were leading up to that crisis point. Does that make sense? You guys following? Um, and, and some of you are not in crisis moment right now or not have been in crisis moment, but crisis may be the unfolding drama that will one day strike you because of the character of who you are right now. You guys follow? So it's, this is absolutely enormous. It's an absolutely important subject because, uh, again, Luke wants us to focus on some of the elements of who uh, this guy Stephen is because, like I said, ultimately at the end of the story, Stephen ends up dying for his undying, faithful commitment, um, pun intended, to Jesus because that's what's in his heart. That's who he is. This is the type of person, this is the quality of person that Stephen is, all the way to the, to the point. There's a consistency all throughout his life. He's not duplicitous. He's not one thing in public and another thing in private. He's not projecting an image that's inconsistent with the reality of who he is. He is who he is, and who he is determined the action, the outcome, which was literally a, a martyr, one who, was di- one who actually died for his faith and commitment to Christ. 
So this is, this is really, really important stuff to consider, to think about, and glean from. So I want to spend a few moments just kind of unpacking a little bit of Stephen's character. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the passage we'll be taking a look at, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in and take a look at it. Sound good? So we'll start at uh, chapter 6, book of Acts. I'll pick it up around verse 7, make a couple comments as we go through, and then uh, pray, and we'll jump in. Starts off verse 7, it says this, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this is a really significant passage, and Luke wants us to kind of consider, like, how this uh, movement, Christianity, uh, again, it wasn't called Christianity. No one would have recognized it as Christianity. If you would have walked down to ask someone, like, hey, where's the Christian people meet? They would be like, who are you talking about? We have no idea of this Christian movement that you so speak of. But um, um, this movement began to spread. In fact, so ubiquitous did this movement begin to spread. It actually is being described as um, being believed or followed by priests. This is really significant because who were the priests in the ancient Jewish culture? Uh, these were the religious leaders. These would have been the civil and the, uh, the, the social, societal leaders that would have had influence over massive amounts of, of people. So think neighborhoods. Think within those neighborhoods. You have you know, core leaders in those neighborhoods, social organizers, people that, um, that, that were able to have influence over people. Um, many of those would have been your local priest or leader of a synagogue. And Luke tells us that this movement is beginning to spread. It's not being accepted or embraced by, by the higher-ups. I mean, the, 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 the main leadership, the core of uh, Jewish life with, within the temple. But these priests, there was hundreds of priests uh, during the time of the first century. And they're following Yeshua now. They're following Jesus. They're being impacted by this. So to put this in the context, if you were to be in discussion with someone today, and let's say, for example, they are um, living in Pakistan or other parts where it's highly... Uh, Islamic, Islamic in its nature, in its context. Um, and they would say probably something like this. Look, if the gospel spreading in the most profound ways, in fact, it's even spreading all the imams, which would have been the religious leaders, all the imams are coming to faith in Jesus. This is how powerful this is. This is a really significant statement that Luke wants us to see. Then he goes on to say, and Stephen, uh, who was full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, then some of them who had belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians. So it was three categories, three groups of people. Uh, we described the freedmen, or the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians. This would have been, uh, and those of Cilicia and Asia, they rose up to dispute against Stephen. So it's easy, I think, to think that all these people were, were monolithic and, and united. Um, this Probably, maybe in today's context, it'd be like in all the Baptists and all the Presbyterians and all the Methodists and all the, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists. They all gather together. So, so it gives you a little bit of the flavor that, that this, is, this is not a, a unified, monolithic group. This is a very, very diverse. But they all agree on one thing, that this, this Jesus story needs to be stopped. Um, this Jesus follower, in this context, Stephen needs to be interrogated. So that's, that's what's going on here. It says in verse 10, it says, But they could not withstand the wisdom of Stephen, with which he was speaking. They then secretly instigated men, and they said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him. They brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place, which would have been the temple, and the law. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, again, reference to the temple, and change the customs that Moses had delivered. And gazing at him, this is where it gets a little bit strange, and uh, we'll make some comment about this in just a little bit. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council... They saw the face as it was like the face of an angel, right? So they're looking at this guy, Stephen. All of a sudden, there's something unique, something radiant about him. And I'll make some comments about that in just a moment. But what's, what's fascinating within the context here is what we see, first of all, is that as this Jesus story is spreading, as uh, priests, even priests, are believing the message, um, this community of people now are interrogating Christians. And this is where it gets pretty heated within the context. So uh, he is being interrogated. And ultimately, we see that there are false accusations that are being uh, leveled against him. Now, 
um, the sharp edge of their argument or critique against Stephen actually has to do with really significant matter. Now, for us, we read this and it doesn't really hit us that, that much. But let's say, for example, let me ask you a question. Um, every culture has um, symbolic emblems that identify one's identity. So, for example, we as Americans, we have symbols that, that would, would identify us as a, as a strong American. So let's say, for example, if you're like, go out and be patriotic day, it's 4th of July, what would you do to emphasize the fact that you're uber patriotic? Like, what would be some of the elements that you would um, establish or do that day to just show forth your, your, your nationalism? Guesses? Flag, number one. What else? Anything else? We're red, white, and blue. That's good. What else? Sorry? Barbecue, of course. Yes, of course. Like like meat, which says American, then apple pie and meat. Um, what else? Anything else? Fireworks. Okay, good. Fireworks. All right, all these things. So so you, you get the idea that these are sort of national emblems. So let's say, for example, um, you wanted to make a public statement that let's say you are anti-American. You're like, like I'm anti-imperialistic. I'm anti-American. I'm anti-empire, which America is this empire. We're going to Send a message, a broad message, a strong message to all Americans that we are anti-American. What, what would you do? You'd probably, in fact, we already know what we would do um, or what others would do. They would take a flag and they'd burn it. That's a, that's a very clear declarative statement that says we are anti-American. Or you uh, fly two jets into uh, what emblemizes capitalism. Get the idea? So... The main body of argument and disputation that the religious leaders had against Stephen was he's speaking words against this place. So in Judaism, there were at least three major markers that gave them identity. One was the Torah. Uh, That's what gave Jewish people their identity. Two was uh, the temple. Uh, Thirdly was uh, Jerusalem itself, the holy city, the city of God. So Jerusalem, temple, and the Torah. These were three massive symbols within Judaism, and, and you, don't, you don't mess with it. Like, you don't, it'd be, it'd be like in today's world, uh, burning the Quran. Like, th- that, that is a capital offense, because it's basically saying, we reject and refuse the word of, words of Allah. And, and it would have that same type of effect. So this is what's going on here. This is what got this crowd in this massive rage, was they felt as if uh, their Torah... They felt as if the temple, they felt as if even Jerusalem itself was under siege by this Jesus message, uh, and particularly from this guy, Stephen. So, but again, this is what kind of sets the background, the backstory as to what ends up happening. Now, there's a handful of things that I want you to notice with regard to Stephen's character, which uh, Luke draws our attention to. We'll take a look at five of them. These are uh, really kind of internal type of qualities, and we'll look at one external quality, and we'll kind of make some summary points, and we'll finish up. So first of all, what are some of the internal qualities that we see? Number one, we see that uh, Stephen was actually a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 5. It says this, chapter 6, verse 5. It says, and he, uh, and, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and then they, they chose Stephen, who was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, we see that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So what exactly does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, in short... Um, I think the word spirit is a little bit misleading. Here's why. Because if you're like me, when you think of the word spirit, we tend to think of a ghost or we think of some other presence or essence. And, and, that, that, and that may be fine. Um, I think the way that first century people, especially Jews, would have thought about the word spirit would have been more akin to this concept of some form of animating force that's unseen, that moves. All right? In fact, it's, it's so important to note this because... In the ancient Hebrew, they had a word for this, which was the Greek word uh, ruach. Now, in the Greek, they had the word pneuma. It almost meant the exact same thing. In fact, that word uh, ruach or pneuma would be used interchangeably to describe any type of uh, uh, force like wind or breeze. Um, those would also, so if you're talking about a wind or a breeze or a gust, you would use the word pneuma or ruach interchangeably to define, describe this inanimate force that breathes life, that brings animation, that moves. So if you were looking out the window and you saw a tree, like I was looking out this morning, the window this morning, and I noticed the trees were absolutely still. There's no wind at all whatsoever that was blowing. 
Uh, if you walk outside right now, probably as the days go a little bit later, the wind begins to blow. So you begin to notice this, this otherwise uh, you know, stationary tree beginning to, to, to wave. And so they would have had this, this image that the breath of God breathes animation, breathes life, that animates that which is dead and lifeless. So, so the picture is, to be spirit-filled is to have the breath of God breathing life into you, animating your deadness. It's a great, great picture. So, so what does it mean to be spirit-filled then? Um, maybe a better way to ask the question is, what does it mean not to be spirit-filled? What does it mean to be a person who is absent or devoid of the breath of God? What does that, what does that look like? Well, I think the way that the New Testament would have understood it, it would mean that you would be acting according to your default mode, which is death. We, we are all creatures of death, and we are all creatures who will one day die. We're all creatures, people, human beings that oftentimes wrestle, struggle with death. Meaning, another word for that is we walk in the flesh, meaning we engage in things that are death-promoting, death-creating um, But what it means to be imbued by the Spirit of God, to have the Holy Spirit breathing life into us, um, Paul would later describe it this way. He says in Galatians chapter 5, 22, some of you guys are familiar with this because it is on your teacup. It says this, the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So this is what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit breathing life in you, upon you, through you, it looks like rather than being someone that is angry and uh, complaining and critical and frustrated and full of rage and wrath and uh, a sense of, 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 of dislike and hatred and criticism, um, someone who's moody, it looks like someone who is patient. Now, again, obviously, some, all of us, I would imagine, we, we hear that and we think, well, that, that's, that's all of us. Like, we all uh, have these moments where we go in and out of that, or that is sort of, for the most part, like, that's how we live. We live our lives, for the most part, being grumpy or angry or full of wrath. But the point of the matter is, is that God wants to change that. There's, there's hope outside of that, to get out of that, to change that. Not just simply by acting better, by having different behavior, but by having the life of God do something about that. The life of God breathe upon you and remove those tendencies towards that. Just think about this this morning as I was just kind of going over my notes and rethinking through some of this. I'm like, I, I just, I, I failed like on all these points last night. Like I wasn't patient. I wasn't kind. I wasn't gentle. It's like, where's our hope? And this is where the hope of uh, being a Christian and follower of Jesus is. Is that Jesus brings the Holy Spirit. Jesus brings forth God's breath upon our lives. So a Christian is not a person who's perfect, who's always walking in these things, but a Christian is one that has been given the tools to look to God when these things become problematic and become definitive in your life and become destructive in your life. It's a Christian is one who's able to recognize, oh my gosh, I'm being angry, I'm filled with wrath again, and my impatience is destroying and crushing these relationships and these people that are around me in my life are being harmed and being threatened, being destroyed because of my inability to be gentle. And at that moment, you begin to realize, God, I need you. I need your strength to help me to go apologize to those whom I just wounded. Help me. That's, that's life. That's the Holy Spirit right there. That's God's life-giving, life-breathing work. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, you guys follow? It's, it's not something that's like uh, a mystery. It's not something that's weird or... Uh, you know, invisible, it, is, it, it has tangible realities. When a tree is being blowed upon by the wind, you can look at the tree and see that it's, it's animated. It's, it's moving. It's come to life. When you have the Holy Spirit move in your life, through your life, it's, you are animating. You are moving. You, there's something about you that looks godlike. It looks like gentleness. It looks like love. It looks like being able to say, I'm sorry. It looks like being able to say, I forgive you. It looks like being able to demonstrate gentleness. And so we see this guy, Stephen, was, was, was being able to operate this way. And uh, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see that he was full of faith, which, which probably just simply means that he had 
faithfulness. He, he trusted in Jesus, trusted in God to not only rescue him and wash him and cleanse him and all these things, but also trusted in God to, to continue to animate him, to continue to breathe upon him, to continue to give him strength for everything I need. Again, the backstory to Stephen is kind of uh, unique because Stephen doesn't come onto the scene as this like monster of a preacher. Like Stephen had sort of a pretty gritty job. So if you were here last week, you remember like, like Stephen got called upon amongst a group of other, you know, seven guys to basically oversee um, the old, old ladies' ministry, right? Women that were widows, women that were griping and complaining and feeling like they were not being ta- well taken care of. Like Stephen's like, hey, you, wanna, you want this ministry? Stephen's like, sign me up. Like, I'll take it. I'll take it on. So he's serving, loving, kindly, taking care of these these. Uh, these ladies that are kind of feeling like they're not being well taken care of. Now, it's a little bit of a caricature right there that I just gave, but you kind of get the idea. So, but Stephen's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. It's equivalent would be kind of in today's context, um, being called upon to be a, either a reconciler or someone that's kind of in the midst of uh, two warring parties. And like, I'm here to be a mediator, which means I'm going to hear all your garbage. And I'm going to hear all your garbage. I'm going to try to synthesize and bring it together and be a bridge builder. And it's long, tedious uh, hard work, or saying, I'm, I'm here to change diapers. Like, it's kind of the same type of work, all right? Um, and the idea is that Stephen starts out, and he's faithful to these things because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, because he's filled with faith, and God, God uses them in these profound ways. Third thing that we see is that in verse 8 is that he was full of grace. Uh, take a look at verse 8 again. It says, And Stephen, who was full of grace, power, uh, grace and power was doing great Wonders and miracles. So the idea of being full of grace, like what exactly does it mean to be full of grace? Again, I I think it looks like, you can look at some examples, it looks like Stephen having gracious attitudes towards people that are sort of unbecoming, people that are not lovely. I mean, we have this tendency to be like, I'll love people if they are lovely, or I'll be kind to people if they're kind to me, or I'll treat people nicely if they treat me nicely. But graciousness, grace, I think says, I'll treat people that never, with kindness that never say thank you. In a lot of ways, it's like being a mom. I mean, seriously, it's like being a dad. It's just being able to, I'm, I'm going to give my life to my kids. I'm going to blow their nose. I'm going to change their diapers. I'm going to help them through this process of trying to make it through life. And I know that they rarely ever say thank you. But, I mean, no parent ever stops and, like, I'm sick of it. I mean, some do. I mean, maybe, look, you're, like, ready to tap out. Maybe that might be your story. So I don't want to read into your situation. But the point of the matter is, like, you get the idea of, of just giving yourself entirely towards something, towards somebody, knowing that there's very little to be offered back to you. So, so Stephen was operating this room. I, I like to think of it this way. Um, Pastor James and I oftentimes describe kind of this amongst ourselves the way that we talk in some of the context about like this reservoir of grace, right? So think of it this way, this big, enormous reservoir, and what it's filled with is not water, but grace, right? So uh, a normal functioning Christian who's being imbued with the Holy Spirit of God, their life is, you know, being lived in a way that's in obedience to Jesus and following Christ, that, that when people um, come into their life and cause conflict, they're able to tap into that reservoir of grace and they're able to act graciousness, with graciousness to them. Um, they're able to act in a way that's like, you know, if, if, they're, if they're offended or if something happens, because there's this massive reservoir that they can, they can offer. Like, here's some grace for you. Like, here's some forgiveness. Here's some kindness offered back to you. And, and sometimes what happens in our lives, that reservoir gets a crack and empties out of all of its grace. And so, and what that looks like in a relationship is, is when relationships become defined by an inability to... Uh, show kindness, or it's just marked by regular, consistent lists of criticism. You know what I mean? I mean, some of us, we've been in relationships like that where at one time, that person, no matter who, that was in your life, no matter what they did, it couldn't be wrong. In other words, you could never get angry with them. Why? Because your reservoir of grace is massive. But now, because of circumstances, whatever the circumstances are, now everything they do annoys you. The way they comb their hair, it's ridiculous. Why do they comb their hair like that? To the way they dress, why do they dress like I can't believe that. To the way they lead, the way they act, the way they talk, what they do. Everything about them annoys you and frustrates you. Why does that happen? What, what by definition is taking place? I'll tell you what happened. Somehow, that reservoir of grace sprung a leak and it's empty. 
you are running at a deficit. You have nothing. You are, you are not just zeroed out with grace, you are in the negative realm. So you have no grace, no kindness, no, uh, no benefit of the doubt to offer them. And typically what happens, why that takes place, is somewhere within, between the relationship where you're filled with grace and they could do no wrong to where now everything they do annoys you and you're angry and frustrated and upset with, somewhere in between that space, something called an offense happened. You could call it an earthquake, an earth shake took place, and it literally sent a crevice into the midst of that reservoir, and all the grace that you once had for that person is now gone. Everything they do runs you at a deficit. It's compounded. You keep lists. You are frustrated. You are angry. There is no goodness you have to offer or give to that person anymore. Guys still with me? Make sense? Follow? Uh, Stephen was, was full of grace. Um, there's an author, uh, speaker, she did a TED Talk. Uh, her name is Brene Brown. Maybe some of you are familiar with her. Um, she wrote this book called Daring Greatly. It's a really, really good book. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if she's a Christian or not, to be quite frank with you. Um, I, I'd heard rumors that she is. I don't really know. Um, it's a really great book. It's kind of a, a, a book about, like, you know, taking big risks and big steps and so on. Kind of a self-help, like, fun, like, type of book like that. Um, but there's, I, I think there's some um, principles in there that can be sort of transposed into Christian-type concepts. So, so here's, here's her big idea is to basically encourage people, like, you know, take big risks and dare greatly and do nice things and be kind to people in, in, in some ways, which, which is all nice. But what, what I think about and the way I would transpose this is into the idea of, and with, re, with regard to the idea of daring greatly, she kind of has this, this theory, and she says, and she's a, she's a guilt and shame research counselor, so she has spent, you know, hundreds, thousands of hours investigating um, people that literally are defined by guilt and shame, um, and they're ruined by guilt and shame. One thing that she noticed uh, by way of her research is that people that, um, that, that dare greatly or people that are able to engage or take great risks and love and show kindness and care and affection to other people and invest themselves in the lives of other people, um, they, there's certain things that help them do that, and then she says that there are actually uh, four shields that keep people from doing that. So she, here's the four shields that she says. The first shield that keeps people from daring greatly, so I'm transposing this in the context. One of the shields that keeps people, I think they kind of transpose over into this context as well. Um, there's, I, I think these four shields work for people that are not able to show grace, people that are not able to be full of grace and let that grace shine, flow through them. Um, so he says, first of all, one is cynicism. Uh, and what, what happens with cynicism is uh, we become people that are jaded. We become cynical. And usually cynicism takes place through kind of this strange process of having your hopes dashed. Having your expectations not met. Anybody have that happen to you? Right? There are people in your life. It could be a spouse. It could be a boss. It could be a pastor. It could be a, a church leader. It could be a friend, a neighbor, a family, a dad, a mom. Uh, uncle, cousin, grandfather, someone that you had high hopes that they would be there for you, that they would give themselves effectively to you, they would care for you, they would love you, they would be available to you when you were down, and somewhere they failed you, and what happened was your expectation and their service misaligned at some point. You following? And it wasn't just like once it happened, it kept happening. And whether it was by their own action or their own willingness, or sometimes it's just they, they didn't even know they were doing it because they had no idea that these expectations were so high of them. And they just they kept failing. At some point, cynicism becomes sort of this, this marker of your life, and it defines your relationship to the point where you're like, I don't expect any good out of this person ever again. And you end up writing that person off. So it comes off like this. They, they will never change. I expect nothing out of them. I expect no good, no benefit, no change, no transformation ever. That is, by definition, cynicism. And it is a shield to grace. It will keep you from receiving grace because at some point that transfers over to God where you begin to hold God to these same standards like God failed me. He didn't give me a spouse. He didn't give me a child. He didn't give me the job I expected. What's wrong with God? What's up with him? How come he's not somehow aligning the stars to somehow serve me? And I'm cynical. I'm angry. I'm jaded. I'm frustrated with God, if he's even up there. 
cynicism. It's a shield to grace. Uh, another one is criticism. And, and this kind of moves into like the, the realm of keeping these lists. Um, Pastor James, I mentioned earlier, um, he, he has this like one bit of advice that he's been giving for the past 20 years to like every pre-married couple. And it's always the same. It's like, keep short lists. And it's funny because, you know, we, we know couples that have been married for a long time. And they're like, Pastor James' advice is like so good. Keep short lists and keep short accounts. And, and that's it. But what happens is when you become critical, you keep long lists. Like the ledger is extremely, ridiculously long. You run out of ink all the time. Because a list just keeps growing. Oh, they combed their hair wrong. They did this. They made me mad here. And they didn't show up at this time. And they're one minute late. It's ridiculous. Why can't they be prompt? And everything they do is falling under the prey of your critical eye. You have a blockage of showing grace. There's hope, though. You can be freed of that. But you have to, first of all, identify the fact that, that it exists. Third thing she says is cruelty. And this is oftentimes just where condescension and anger and bitterness in a sense where it begins to morph into a sense of actual brutality. And it could be in the form of physical actions and physical violence and verbal violence and that, that, that streak of rage that just simply comes out of nowhere. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It came out of the character that you are. That's who you are. But there's good news because there's hope because you can be changed. But you've got to identify that. You've got to recognize that. What are the triggers? What are the things that cause that? And then finally, she describes coolness. I love this one. Just coolness. Like being too cool for school. You only want to hang out with the right people that look like you, act like you. And if they don't line up with that, so you, you, you choose very selectively, very carefully who you want. But uh, here's the thing I would say, suggest, is that every single one of these things, even though she's describing them as sort of these um, um, shields to daring greatly. I would say these are, these are really transposed nicely into shields of, of grace. Um, Stephen was this, this man who was full of grace, and, and it comes out in the way that he acted. I mean, he was literally serving the least of the least in the early church context, and he did it joyfully. He was serving these people that had nothing to give back to him because he recognized, and in some ways it's kind of like, like, man, when you serve people that you have nothing, and that's why Jesus would say it's better to give than it is to receive. But what happens is sometimes we get struck with these elements of brokenness, and we break underneath the way of it as well. So we see, first of all, that he was not only a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of faith. Thirdly, he was full of grace. Uh, fourthly, we see that he was full of power. And we see that the power in verse 8 led him to do these signs and miracles and wonders. This is unique, uh, miraculous scenario that was happening through Stephen's life. Fifthly, we see that he was full of wisdom, full of wisdom. Uh, wisdom, the word actually that's used here comes from an ancient Hebrew word that means skill. In fact, the word is actually used uh, to describe the people that were craftsmen and workers within the tabernacle. So uh, people skillfully made and applied their craftsmanship to the wood that they carved and to the uh, to the emblems that they made and to the things that they sewed. So I love to think of it this way, that, that wisdom um, and, and craftsmanship go together. It's not just simply taking raw material, but it's skillfully using that raw material so that it brings forth something that's life-giving, something that demonstrates beauty. Um, so if you put it in this context, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says this, the Lord gives wisdom. Obviously, that's, God is wise. God gives wisdom, and he gives it to people that come to him. It says, his mouth uh, comes forth knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 9, 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this guy, Stephen, was full of wisdom. And I think it kind of refers to this right contact, or conduct, sorry, uh, in obedience to God's will. It's not just simply mastering a body of information. So in other words, there is a distinction between wisdom and knowledge. So the two are actually distinct in the Bible. So you can know a lot of stuff. In fact, if you are religious, you might be the most dangerous position because you may know a lot about God, a lot about the Bible, a lot about Christian stuff, a lot about Christian terminology, but not be wise in any way, shape, or form. Which means you may take this raw material of knowledge and information and stuff, but use it in a way that is actually not life-giving. You're not wise. The, the word for person who's not wise, actually foolish. That's the exact opposite of that. And so oftentimes it's possible for someone to have all sorts of knowledge about 
stuff about God, but not act in a way that's wise. But Stephen was a guy that had this knowledge of God um, and yet operated in a way that was just full of wisdom. So the words that he spoke were from God, and they were life-giving. Um, and that's the type of person we see that he was. So we see, again, that godly character really is this basis of courage for Stephen. So I'll say it again. Who you are, character person that you are, will determine and be and set a course for what you will do. Um, I like to think of it this way. Every one of us, our life is on a trajectory. It's setting a course. It's marking a course, which means who you are right now, um, someday down the road, you will become something that you can either look at and be like, that's, that's awesome. It's the type of person I want to be. Or you will become the very thing that you didn't want to be. So, so what this looks like, right, um, in, in the movies, sometimes you'll have the, the classic story of Vendetta, right? So the classic, you know, I've been wronged, I'm going to go out and, and wrong them. So, so what happens is they have been, innocent, they've been an innocent party that's been offended, that's been wounded, you know, maybe their family was taken away or their spouse was killed, and now they're out to get retribution. So, so what happens is oftentimes in the storyline, they end up becoming just like the very person that destroyed their life because it, who they were set them on this course of what they did. People don't just wake up one day in a place, in a life that's full of, of, of brokenness. I mean, again, unless certain things happen to us, but even the way certain things happen to us, we have the ability to respond to those things. Let me give you an example. Um, remember several years ago there was a, uh, a pilot that flew, um, I think it was Saddlemeyer, I think it was his name. He flew the, that plane. It was, it was like the engines went out and they lands, crash lands on, on, the, on the water, body of water, right? You remember what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Okay, good, good. I just want to make sure um, I'm not making this stuff up. So anyways, like, like when this guy recognized our plane is going down, I'll, I guarantee you he did not whip out manuals. What to do? You know, turn to page 105. Like, like what to do when the plane goes out? He, he didn't do that, I guarantee you. What he did is he operated based upon this body of knowledge, applied wisdom to everything that he had learned up to that point. He, by second nature, was able to act this way. And the same thing, when crisis hits us, we will act according to our character. Stephen acted according to his character. The moment things got rough, the moment things were coming down, the moment his world was falling apart, the moment the rocks began to hit his skin... He acted according to his character. It's one of the reasons why Luke actually records for us at the very end uh, that while this was happening, he cries out, mimics a prayer that he no doubt probably heard in the back of his mind or at least heard, communicated to him by way of other people. So while he is feeling rocks against flesh, he cries out, Father, forgive them. He was so taken up into the Jesus story. It was a part of his nature. It was a part of his character. The moment he was being wrongly treated, he could immediately invoke the story, the life, the narrative of God. That's, that's who he was. So, closing, a couple things to consider and finish up. Um, we see this external quality, and uh, it's in verse 15, the very last verse of chapter 6. It says this, um, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face as it was the face of an angel. And, and here's, here's my like, little helpful information on this. Like, nobody really knows exactly what this is talking about. I, I certainly don't know exactly what this is talking about. Like, like um, every commentator I read, every Bible teacher, scholar I read, they, they just have their own take. So nobody really knows. So this, this, the, the best explanation I heard of this is that maybe this was probably a reference to when Moses came down from the... Um, from, from Sinai, and his face was glowing like with the glory of God. So, so that's probably the closest thing I, w- I would like him to. So for whatever reason, um, I, I just can be drawn back to the fact that whatever was happening here, th- they were just reporting what they saw. So this was the reality, that whatever the situation was, that as Stephen was being attacked and brutalized and interrogated and being forced into this situation, something about the way he was conducting himself was radiant. That's, best, that's my best thing I can give to you. And, and here's, 
Here's one other final thing I'll, I'll kind of throw with regard to that that I think kind of dovetails into that is C.S. Lewis in uh, his treaty called The Weight of Glory. Uh, he writes something like this because I, I think the idea between radiance and glory kind of go hand in hand. Here's what he has to say. He says, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things, the door on which we have long been knocking all of our lives will open at last. That basically in short means this, that glory means somehow God looking upon us with great delight. I I don't know how you think of God looking upon you. Some of you, your life is literally paralyzed when you think of Christian stuff or moving into a relationship with God. Whatever that means to you, for some of you, it's paralyzing. It cripples you because in your mind, you picture God as filled with anger and wrath and condescension towards you. But C.S. Lewis tapped into was this theme that's throughout Scripture that actually, because of Jesus, God looks upon us with radiance and delight. The best way I can liken it to is when my kids were young, and even when they're you know, in their late teens now, there's times, uh, I, I remember a time one, when they were really, really young, um, praising them, like, like, great job. And I remember m- my daughter looked up at me with this sense of like, she like takes a deep breath, really? Like, and I'm like, yes, I'm so good. And Daddy's so proud of you. And I give her a big hug, and she's, she's literally glowing, radiantly glowing. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, what I think Stephen experienced, was that he, he caught this, this reality that God has great favor over his servant. He loves him. If you can get a glimpse of this, that in spite of who you are, the types of circumstances you've been in, that God loves you, that God radiantly loves you, because of what, through what Jesus has done, he's demonstrated his love for you, in that Christ literally lifted off of us the brokenness, the sinfulness, the rebellion, the destruction, the despair upon himself. And now God looks at his children with, with a sense of great delight. That, that, that will change your heart. It will change your life. It will change your perspective, change your attitude. In fact, if, if you want something really good to read, my, my encouragement, just read, I mean, even just read the first chapter of The Way to Glory. It, it will absolutely change you for forever i mean first time i read it i've read the book like three or four times but the, the first chapter i typically just read because it's so powerful so it literally is like a weight of glory the heaviness of god's favor and this is what we see i think stephen is is moved by this so a few observations and i'm done one i think what we see here because of stephen's character this kind of formed the foundation for him and his testimony is witness to be able to stand boldly in front of this group of people um, again, we already talked about this. The idea of who you are will determine what you do, especially in the moment of crisis. Um, second thing, and done here, is we also see that this actually freed him to be able to entrust the results to God. So in other words, Stephen's about to face the most trialsome circumstance of his entire life. So he faithfully communicates everything that he's learned, everything that he's known in a, in a, in a posture, in a heart, with a faith. That's glowing, again, whatever that looks like. And, and in such a way, like, it, 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 look, at the end of the day, if you are a comedian, you stand up in front of your audience, and your night opens with a bang but ends with you dead on the stage because they threw rocks at you, um, probably didn't go too well. Um, if you start your sermon and everyone's engaged, even though it might be out of rage and anger and wrath, and you end on the stage dead, it's probably because it was not, quote-unquote, successful. Stephen, in a sense, as a preacher, failed. If you want to call it failure. But it didn't matter because for him, Stephen's life, I think, can be summarized with one word. Obedient. He's obedient to the heart of of God. Because he saw, he was able to trust God. Our inability to obey the heart of our Father Always, 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 always is linked to our distrust of him. Stephen was able to say, I I trust God. And therefore, I'm able to entrust myself to him. And that changed, it transformed who he was inside, the person he was, 
And so that when life came against him and things were falling apart and coming and done, he was able to act in the way that he was able to act. So obedience, I think that's the way I would sum it up. And I want to finish with this thought. There was a, a pastor's name is Joseph Tson, I think is the way that you pronounce it, T-S-O-N. Um, he's actually Romanian, and uh, he was a pastor in Romania in, in the uh, 70s. Um, he actually had to flee Romania for his life. It was during the reign of a dictator by the name of Ceausescu. And uh, if you know anything about his history, it was, it was, it was brutal. Uh, he killed many, many people, and the, uh, the, the, the quality of his murders were just uh, horrific, horrific. And so this pastor, uh, Pastor Tson, was able to flee to England. And uh, it was in England he teamed up with um, um, uh, a school, a church. Um, he was able to go to seminary. Uh, he became good friends with a preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, amazing, amazing man of God. And uh, once he finished his education and he decided, I'm, I'm going to go back into um, the area of Romania and, and, and preach the gospel. And uh, as he was dialoguing with a bunch of his friends, they were kind of like trying to discourage him and dissuade him. And like, look, if you go back there, you know that you're probably going to be arrested at the border. I mean, aren't you concerned about that? Don't you think that, uh, you, you know, that your chances of having success in implementing your plans are, are really next to like zilch? you know, next to none. And it was, it was funny, then Joseph, in his little story, he says this, uh, Joseph smiled and he said to himself, now this is an extremely typical Western thinking. And he goes on and says, uh, he would later write, chances of success, you know, question mark, like, chances of success? Like, you guys are actually worried about chances of success? He's like, this is a total Western perspective. He goes on to say, I never thought about my move back into this brutalized circumstance in the context of success my thinking was always in terms of obedience. So powerful. Because so much of us, we, are, we act our lives, we live our lives in this way where we're like, look, I'll do it, I'll invest my energy, my time, my money, my abilities, whatever, if I have some guarantee that it's going to be quote-unquote successful. For this guy, he's just like, success, like that whole westernized narrative it's, it's, it's about obedience. If Jesus is king, if Jesus is asking me to go back into Romania knowing I might die, then I'm going to go. There's this one final story, and it's going to end with this. It's kind of cool. He uh, goes on. He says, uh, you know, I was asking the Lord uh, in prayer, you know, what about your success? He says, you know, uh, he says, what if I ask you, God, about your success? And he says, the Lord spoke to me and says, in Matthew 10, 16, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And the Lord said to him, uh, or said to me, as uh, he's, he's telling the story, he says, tell me what chance does a sheep surrounded by wolves have of surviving five minutes, let alone converting the wolves? Joseph, that's how I send you out, totally defenseless and without a reasonable hope of success. If you are willing to go like that, go. If you're not willing to go into that position, then don't go. And he tells of this story that uh, when he ends up going back into Romania, he, he does get arrested, and then he gets interrogated, and the guards come, they steal all of his, or take all of his books, confiscate everything that he owns, and uh, while he's kind of in this interrogation uh, room, he's basically being queried by this guy, and this guy is uh, asking him all these questions, and then Joseph records in the story, he says, um, he, he asks the guy who's interrogating him, he says, sir, uh, let me explain to you how I see this issue. So he's obviously being polite. And he says this. He says, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Think about that. He's like, your supreme weapon, the greatest weapon you have in your arsenal, the biggest thing that you can have to throw at me, to threaten me, to get me to move in action is your threat of killing me. My greatest weapon against you is being willing to die. He says, but... If you kill me, hundreds and thousands of people have my, my audio cassette tapes because that was the time then they had these like little plastic things that tape in it and uh, people would listen to them in this like little cassette player. And he says, hundreds of thousands of people have my cassette tapes. And if you kill me, everybody will know that you killed me for the contents that was on those tapes. And that will immediately raise the value. It will cause everybody that knows that I die, they will match my blood with the message on that cassette tape and they'll listen to it. So if you kill me, the message of the gospel will go out in more profound ways. And so it actually worked in his favor. They ended up letting him live. But the point of the matter is, is that this guy recognized 
life is not about just trying to measure a bunch of success. Will this be successful? Will this be a successful year? It's about obedience. I think Stephen got that. And as a result, his life becomes one of those lives that you look at. It's shock. It's amazing. It's beautiful. But let me finish with this thought. I have the worship team come on up, and I'll just close with some final things. Um, at this point, you know, we can just be like, all right, guys, everybody go out and do your very best and be like Stephen. Like, that, that's not what this message is. Because at the end of the day, that message will fail you because some of you already start in the negative, in the deficit. You're like, I'm, I'm a loser. I can't do this. And why even try? So this whole Christian thing doesn't work. Or some of you are type A personalities. You'll be like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And you'll be like Stephen. And uh, at some point, like, that energy will carry you and it will fail and, and you, then you'll feel, like, full of despair. So, and, or if you do succeed, you'll be full of arrogance. You'll be like, all those other Christians, they're not reading their Bible as much as I am or sharing the gospel or leading people to Jesus like I am. I'm awesome. How come everybody's not like me? And you'll become arrogant and prideful of the very thing that Jesus came to die for, to rescue you from, you'll become. But the point of the matter is, this, this, this is all about how to do this in a way that changes our hearts. Because at the end of the day, um, there's, there's only one thing that will actually transform our hearts from the brokenness to radiance is understanding the, really the story of the gospel. And I'll put the verse up on the screen. It's out of Philippians. And uh, it's about obedience. And it tells us, Paul says, he, Jesus, he humbled himself in obedience to God. So the story of the Bible is that we have a God who comes into this world, and Jesus is the full image of God. He is God. He is God, man, God in the flesh. He obeys to the point of death. This is even the death on the cross, which is the most brutalizing type of way to die. But Jesus obeys the Father. He could have come. He could have says, don't want to do that. But he, does. he obeys fully, completely. And there's some controversy as to whether or not could Jesus really say that or not. But the point that I was making is this. Just simply take my words. Forget the last thing I just said. Jesus obeyed the Father to the point of death. And then it says, therefore, because of this, God elevated him to the point where it's the place of highest honor. Jesus was glorified, radiant, resurrection, ascension. And this is the life that God calls us into. So, who are you? What quality of person are you? Is there massive disjunction between your reputation and your identity? Or your character, who you really are. Is there a massive gulf between those two things? Are, are you somebody that inside you look at yourself, you're like, I know who I really am and I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm sickened even. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. But here's, here's the beauty of the gospel. Christianity is about, says all times, it's about a table. It's about God laying out a table with, with every, everything you can imagine that's just like beautiful and good. And he goes out and he invites all. He says, come. We hear that message oftentimes. We're like, you don't, you don't want me. You don't know me. You don't know my past. You don't know my present. You don't know the, the trajectory of my life. And God's like, I, I do know it. I know everything. I know everything about you. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed to call you to this table. So it's an invitation. It's always an invitation to come to this table, to feast upon the life-giving bread that God offers of himself. To be changed. To truly at the core of who you are be changed. It's an invitation. I invite you. Come. We'll sing. Try to partake of communion. We have some people available that would love to pray with you. Let's, let's respond. So why don't we all stand? And um, if you want, just one final invitation. To respond with physically, with, with your body. Typically, what I, what I like to do, I, just, I like to lift up my hands. It's just a way of me saying, God, this is really the posture of, of my heart. It's one of receptivity. God, I need you. I come. These hands that I bring to you, these hands, they're open, but they're also, they're also stained. They're stained. They're stained by 
actions that I'm ashamed of, they're stained by inaction, things that I know I should be doing but I'm not doing, they're stained. And I, I present them to you. God, wash me, cleanse me. Holy Spirit, breathe life, animate this motionless, broken body of mine. Give me life. So I, I invite you, maybe, if you'd like, even right now, just hand, raise your hands. If you don't feel like that or if you feel like it's weird, it's fine, don't do it. Don't do it. But if you'd like to, I just invite you. Let me just raise your hands. I'm going to pray and we'll sing. So God, we come to you this morning right now and we just have hands raised. It's our way of just saying, God, we, we come bringing our lives, our hands to you and just say, God, we, we need you. Holy Spirit, come. We come expecting, believing, trusting that you will wash us and cleanse us and fill us.